Good morning. Good to see you here this morning. Take your Bibles and let's turn together to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. We are exploring some of the great unsolved mysteries of the Christian faith. And uh, we started this series by uh, thinking about our great and awesome God. And then we looked at the mystery of the Trinity. And we talked about the mystery of the cross. And then we looked at the mystery of the incarnation. And today I want us to look at the mystery of salvation. The mystery that is salvation. And uh, we're going to start with John chapter 3, just kind of get us going this morning. John chapter 3, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. And in John 3, 3, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. Folks, that's mystery, isn't it? It's like the wind. You see, you observe its effects, but you don't know where it's coming, where it's going. It's a mystery. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And then move down to verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. As we are exploring some of these unsolved mysteries, we're finding out that many of these mysteries revolve around paradoxes, paradoxical truths, where we have two truths that, that on, on the surface would seem to contradict each other. And these true truths have to be held in juxtaposition. Uh, G.K. Chesterton observed that a, a paradox is a truth standing on its head, waving its legs to get attention. <laughs> That's a paradox. And so we have these seemingly contradictory truths that have to be held in tension, held in juxtaposition. Well, this morning, I want to show you three paradoxes that, that, that are part of the mystery of salvation. So if you have your listening guide, simple outline this week, especially compared to last week, but very simple, three paradoxes. And in these paradoxes, you need both and. It's not one side or the other, it's both and. So here's the first paradox that is part of the mystery of salvation. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Divine sovereignty and, not one or the other, not or, and human responsibility. Or to put it in other terms, election and free will. Now, back when we were talking about the Trinity, we said that God, we, that God is one. There's one God, God is one. He's one being. He exists in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. If you deny the Trinity, then you have left the Christian faith. That's, I mean, that's the boundary of, of orthodoxy. That's the boundary of the Christian faith. You deny the Trinity, you're outside the, outside the household of faith. We talked about the incarnation. Jesus is the God-man. He's all God, all man at the same time. He's God in the flesh. And if you deny either the humanity of Christ or the deity of Christ, you've, you've, left, you've left the household of faith. Again, you have left the, the realm of Christian faith. So now when we come to divine sovereignty and human responsibility or election and free will, 
this is within the household of faith. This is a debate. These are issues. This is inside baseball. This is an intramural sport. So these are issues that we wrestle with inside the household of faith. Now, one would hope that inside the household of faith, inside the the family of God, we could look at these issues, explore them, debate them charitably, and if we arrive at different conclusions, then we can do that amicably and just agree to disagree. That's what you would wish for. Sadly, the church does not have a real good track record of doing that. Um, In fact, just the opposite. Erwin Lutzer tells the story of a group of theologians that got together for a meeting. And in this this group of theologians, they started talking about election and free will. Next thing you know, it got hot and heated. And they and, and, they, and it just turned into a fuss. And we, have ended, we ended up with two groups. It blew up their meeting, and we ended up with two groups. There's an election group over here, the Divine Sovereignty Election Group. And then you have the Human Responsibility or the Free Will Group over here. And then there was one fellow kind of left in the middle, wasn't sure where he stood, wasn't sure where he belonged. And so he, he goes over to the, the Election Divine Sovereignty Group, and they look at him suspiciously and sideways, and they say, why are you here? And he said, well, I came of my own free will. Free will, none of that around here. You're in the other group. Oh, okay. So he goes over to the free will group and they look at him sideways and suspiciously and say, why are you here? And he says, well, I was sent here. No, you can't be a part of our group unless you come of your own free will. Go away. And so, so the man was left confused and out in the cold. Well, that's kind of sad. It would be in a funny story if it wasn't so sad. And it's sad because that really is the history of the church. In the early fifth century, this was a hot debate particularly between two men, one named August, uh, Augustine, the other guy, Pelagius. And Augustine was more the divine sovereignty election side of the debate. Pelagius was on the free will side of the debate. And then there were some folks who were trying to find middle ground. And so you end up with Augustinianism and Pelagianism and semi-Pelagianism, guys trying to find a middle ground. That was in the early 5th century. That's early in church history. Let's fast forward up to the Reformation era. You've heard of Martin Luther, perhaps. Martin Luther and Erasmus, two men greatly used of God in the Reformation. Martin Luther and Erasmus were friends until this issue blew up their friendship. And Martin Luther was more on the Augustinian side, the election side. Erasmus was on the free will side, and this this killed their friendship. Um, In the 17th century, John Calvin and Jacob Arminius debated this issue, and they really became the namesakes of two theological systems that were organized really around either election or free will. And Calvinism is all about election, divine sovereignty. Arminianism emphasizes free will. And ever since then, since the 17th century, most Western Christianity, if it's non-Catholic Christianity in the West, Protestant evangelical Christianity, any group, any church is going to fall somewhere on those two family trees. Really somewhere, somewhere in the Calvinism family tree of theology or in the Armenian family tree of theology. And in some cases, the branches of these two trees are, are actually pretty close together and sometimes they're a million miles apart. But it, it essentially divides Christendom. And then in the 18th century, maybe you've heard of George Whitfield and John Wesley, two, 
two amazing preachers of that era, preached on two different continents in Europe and in America. These, these guys were contemporaries. They were friends. They went to Oxford together. In fact, when George Whitfield was preaching in America, he asked John Wesley to come preach in his church and kind of be the interim pastor. Would you lead my church and, and preach for me while I'm in America preaching? And John Wesley said, sure, I'll be happy to. And Whitfield said, but if you would stay away from free will and election, would you? That's not helpful. Well, Wesley was becoming increasingly Armenian in his theology. Whitfield was becoming more and more Calvinist in his theology. And while Whitfield was gone, guess what Wesley preached on? <laughs> Election and free will. And he, he preached on free will, and he turned Whitfield's church against him and uh, blew up their friendship. In Southern Baptist life, we're a Southern Baptist church. In Southern Baptist life, this has become an extremely contentious issue in the last 25 years. And it has divided churches, it has divided associations. Not between Calvinism and Arminianism, but where exactly on the family tree of Calvinism are we going to land? Which branch are you going to roost in? And we've been fussing about that. So this is, I mean, this is a contentious subject. What's the problem? Why can't we figure this out? Because I, in fact, I'll tell you the truth. I almost didn't put that in this series of messages. It is such a hot live wire. It, it causes problems every time it comes up. I almost didn't preach on it, but it's part of the mystery of salvation. Well, why is this such an issue? Why can't we get this sorted? Because it's a mystery. It is a mystery. It confounds us. And it's a paradox. And we've seen already with some of these other mysteries, we don't like mysteries. We want them solved. We like it all planned out. We want it to be logical and sequential, predictable, manageable. That's what we want. We want it all diced out and systematized, and it just won't work that way. And with paradoxes, we, we are inevitably drawn to one side of the paradox or the other. It's just really hard to thread the needle. We're, we, we, tend to, we tend to gravitate toward one side or the other, but we have to keep both in view. So this is, this is it's a mystery that confounds us. And we end up conflicted uh, about it. Well, here's the crux of the issue. The Bible teaches both divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Let's break it down a little bit. First of all, the Bible teaches divine sovereignty in salvation. That is to say, election. God is the initiator. God is the originator. God, uh, God is the source. He is the cause. He is the actor. God is the one who saves if you are saved, if you're a Christian, it's not because one day you did the calculus. I mean, you sat down with a Spock-like logical reasoning and you sorted it out and you seriously investigated the claims of Christ and you just came to the reasoned conclusion that, that you were a sinner before a holy God and Jesus is who he said he was. He's the son of God. He died on the cross and he rose again. And having reached that conclusion, you, you understood you needed Jesus and so you sought God and you did what you needed to do to get saved and that's what you did and that's how you got saved. If you're saved, that's not how that happened at all. Oh, no. If you're saved, it's because God chose you in him before the foundation of the world. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And the Holy Spirit of God convicted you of sin and righteousness and judgment to come. And the Father drew you to his Son. And the Spirit of God opened your eyes that you might see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. That's how you got saved. And you can't take credit for any of it. And, and, and a Christian cannot look down his nose at an unbeliever thinking that, that I'm, better than, I'm better than he is. Oh, no, you've just been shown mercy and grace and forgiveness that you don't deserve. 
Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I am found, was blind, but now I see. And God did all of it. Divine sovereignty in salvation. But now the Bible also teaches human responsibility in salvation. Jesus preached, repent and believe the gospel. That's Mark 1.15. That's how he began his earthly ministry. Repent and believe the gospel. Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Now, if we don't have to repent and believe the gospel, why did Jesus tell, tell us you better repent and believe the gospel? We have to repent and believe. And in 2 Peter 3, the Lord is not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Acts 17.30, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. In Romans 10, 13, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. We have to call on the name of the Lord. Acts 16, 30, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. We have to repent and believe there's a human responsibility, a human response. We must repent and believe. We just read in John 3, whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have everlasting life. In John 3, 18, he that believeth is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. Why? Because he's not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. Human responsibility. We must repent and believe. In fact, let me show you something. You're in John 3. Go over to John 6, and we see both sides of this paradox in one passage. We see both of these truths together. In John 6 and verse 35, Jesus said to them, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. There's human responsibility. You come to Christ. You believe on Christ. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Well, look at that. You come to him because the Father gave you to the Son. The one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that all of all that he has given me, there's divine sovereignty, I will lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him, human responsibility, you behold the Son, you believe in him, and you'll have eternal life. I myself will raise him up on the last day. Move down to verse 44. No one can come to me Unless the Father who sent me draws him. There's divine sovereignty. No one comes to the Son except the Father draws him to the Son. But then in verse 45, it's written in the prophets, And they shall be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. <laughs> so there's your human responsibility. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. What do you have to do? You have to believe human responsibility. I am, the I am the bread of life. Move over to verse 65. And he was saying, for this reason, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the father. Both, isn't it? No, you come to me, but you come to me because it's been granted to you from the father. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility. In John 1:12, we saw this last week. In John 1, 12, as many as received him, to them gave he the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Look, here's human responsibility. We receive him. You receive by faith the gift of eternal life. We receive him. We believe on his name. But notice God gives the right or the power to become the sons of God. And then he says, you were born not of the will of the flesh, not born of the will of man, but of God. Divine sovereignty. 
Both and. In Ephesians chapter 1, he chose us in him from the foundation of the world. And in that same passage, it says, having heard, you believed. Having heard the message, you believed. There's both sides of the equation. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Or election and free will. It's like the Trinity. Remember we said in the Trinity, God is one being. He's not three. He's one being who exists in three persons. One and three, three and one. You have to hold it in tension. Hold it in tension. Jesus is the God man. All God, all man at the same time. All God, all man. How can that be? Don't know. You just have to hold it in tension. <laughs> don't, don't, don't go either way. You have to hold it in tension. There's election and free will. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility. You have to hold it in tension. It's a mystery. It's a paradox. It is a mystery. In fact, some scholars have pointed out, you know, when we talk about election, we don't even know what we're talking about. We're trying to compare apples and oranges and say it's apples and apples. We understand election from our perspective. We understand what it is to know something or think we know something and then make choices based on what we know and decisions and volition. That's our temporal human perspective. That's our understanding of choice or election, whatever it might be. But God is transcendent. God's in a whole category by himself. He, he's, he's not like us. He is eternal. His knowledge is, um, he's omniscient in his knowledge. He knows all things from all eternity. And what choosing or electing or whatever that means for him is probably not even what it means for us. And we may not even know what we're talking about. It's just that mysterious. It's a mystery. Someone asked Spurgeon one time, great preacher of yesteryear, how do you reconcile divine sovereignty and human responsibility. How do you reconcile those? And he says, oh no, I've never reconciled friends. They go together. It's a mystery. It's the mystery of salvation. Well, there's divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Here's the next paradox. Salvation costs nothing and it costs everything. It costs nothing and it costs everything. It's a paradox. Let's break it down. First of all, salvation costs nothing. It's the gift of God. Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. You know what a wage is. <laughs> you go to work, you work a while, you earn a wage. It's what you earn by, value, by, by virtue of your working. You get wages, salaries, and tips. The wages of sin, what we have earned from God on the basis of our, our trespasses, our sins against God, is death. A physical death, a spiritual death, and what the Bible calls a second death, a lake of fire. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Eternal life is God's gift. You don't earn it, otherwise it'd be a wage. It's a gift. And a gift, by definition, is something you don't buy. <laughs> if you buy it, is not a gift anymore. It's a purchase. You don't earn it. Otherwise, it'd be a wage. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace are ye saved through faith. For by grace, God giving us what we don't deserve. If you did deserve it, it wouldn't be grace anymore. It would be a merit. It'd be a wage. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is what? The gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. It's God's gift. You don't pay for it, it'd be a purchase. You don't earn it, it'd be a wage. There's nothing you can give God in exchange for. Okay, God, I'll give you my heart. I'll give you my life if you'll give me eternity. No, it doesn't work that way. It is God's gift, a gift of grace. There's nothing you can give God in exchange. There's nothing. It is God's gift. 
And it cost you nothing because Jesus paid it all. He bought that gift with his blood on Calvary's cross. He paid it all. So salvation cost nothing. It's the gift of God. On the other hand, salvation is a free gift that will cost you everything. In Luke chapter 14, there's a large multitude following Jesus around, kind of wanting to see what he's going to do next. And Jesus turns to the multitude and he says, hey, anybody wants to follow me, come on. You know, open invitation, anybody who wants to, whosoever will, if you want to follow me, love to have you, but now count the cost. And in Luke 14, Jesus says, here's what it means to follow me. Here are the conditions. One, you're going to have to put me ahead of your family. And if you're not willing to hate your father, mother, brother, sister, and it's not hate, hate, but rather by comparison, if you can't put me ahead of family allegiance, well, then you cannot be my disciple. Count the cost. And, and if you're going to be my disciple, you have to give up all your possessions. I'm going to come before your money and material goods. And if, if you can't live with that, well, then you can't be my disciple. Count the cost. And if you're going to follow me, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Count the cost. And he says, count the cost. It's like a man going to build a tower. He has to count the cost, make sure he's got the money and the materials to get finished before he gets started. Otherwise, you end up with a half-built tower and you're the laughingstock of your community because you couldn't finish what you started. Count the cost. Or it's like a man, going, a king going out to war and he does a little troop assessment. How is my troop strength compared to the other king's troop strength? And if I don't think I can win this, I better sue for peace before it kicks off. Count the cost. So if you want to follow me, come on, count the cost. Why? There's a cost involved in following Jesus. It'll cost you everything. Turn with me to Mark chapter 8. In Mark chapter 8, Jesus offers this invitation to a crowd. And there's a whole context here that adds a lot of richness and depth and texture to this passage. We're going to have to ignore that for, for time's sake this morning. I'm sorry. But in Mark 8, verse 34, Jesus summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them. So here's an open invitation to a crowd, not just his select disciples, but to the crowd. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow after me. So here's an open invitation to the crowd. If anyone, whosoever will, more than Mary, if you want to follow me, come on. But then we have conditions. We have a conditional statement. If, then, and there are three imperative commands. These are not suggestions or wishes or desires. There are three commands. If you're going to follow me, here's what that means. One, you're going to deny yourself. To deny yourself, he's saying that, that you have to turn away from a self-centered life and you're going to turn to a Christ-centered life. And you're not going to live for yourself, you're going to live for Christ. You're not going to live life your way, you're going to live life his way. You deny yourself. And take up your cross. Now remember, Jesus hasn't been crucified yet, so kind of set that aside. But he uses the word for cross, the, the word he uses refers to the horizontal beam on a, on a crucifixion. And his audience, they knew what a cross was. They've all seen a crucifixion. It's this horrible, shameful, uh, painful means of execution that the Romans perfected. And when Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, he's not saying, well, you have to bear up under the irritations and the difficulties of your life. I've got a bad back, but that's just my cross I have to bear. My nagging wife or my lazy husband, just my, my cross I have to bear. No, a cross is a means of execution. It's a means of extreme humiliation, extreme punishment, and death. Jesus is saying, if you want to follow me, be prepared to be persecuted. Be prepared to be hated. Be prepared to suffer. Be prepared to die. That's what it means to follow me. Count the cost. 
And then he says, follow me. So if anybody wants to follow me, follow me. Well, that's redundant. <laughs> if you want to follow me, follow me. Well, to follow him, that's, that's, that's the language of discipleship. And that means I'm going to follow him. He's going to be my leader. I'm his follower. He's my master teacher. I'm his student. And a disciple wants to receive the teachings and live the teachings of his master, wants to imitate the master and champion the cause of the master. That's what it means to be a disciple. That's what it means to follow Jesus. So if anybody wants to follow me, you have to follow me. Now there's a grammatical twist here in this verse. And I'll save you, I won't bore you with the with, the, with the, too many of the details, but suffice it to say that the first two commands in the language of the New Testament, the first two commands speak of a, a completed action, not necessarily in the past, but a completed action. The third command is an ongoing continuous action. So here's the implications. If you want to follow me, you have to deny yourself. That's a settled reorientation of life. I'm crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Done. Settled. Period. That's over. And then you take up your cross. That's a settled commitment of life. I'm going to follow Jesus, no matter the cost, no matter the consequences. Settled, done, <laughs> debate's over. It's a settled thing. But then, follow me. Well, that's ongoing. That's not settled. That's not done. It's a day by day by day by day thing. It's a continuous thing. It's the ongoing practice of my life. I'm following Jesus. Here's the point. Christ followers actually follow Christ. <laughs> Calling yourself a Christ follower doesn't make you a Christ follower. Following Christ makes you a Christ follower. Being a Christian isn't walking down the aisle one time, shaking the preacher's hand and saying this quick little prayer that has no impact on your life. And then you go back to living your life for yourself, living it your way. Hey, one day when you die, you're going to go to heaven because there was that time you said that little prayer. That's not the gospel. That's not what Jesus is preaching. There are costs involved. This is a gift that'll cost you nothing and it'll cost you everything. In fact, let's keep reading. He says, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the son of man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. If you try to save your life, you'll end up losing your life. If you try to hang on to a comfortable self-centered life, you'll lose it all. If you don't want to be associated with Christ when the heat comes on, if you, if you don't want to be, if you are ashamed of Christ, he will be ashamed of you. That's what he said. On the other hand, if you lose your life for his sake, if you spend your life for the sake of the gospel, you'll end up saving your life and you'll find life in Christ. And, and nothing is more valuable, nothing is more important than Jesus and eternal life. What will a man give in exchange for his soul? And if you had everything this world had to offer, if you had the money and fame and power and luxury, I mean, if you had, if you, if you gained the whole world and forfeit your soul, what have you gained? Nothing. You've lost everything. It's worth more. Eternal life and to know Jesus is worth more than anything it would ever cost you, more than anything you could ever lose or give. It's worth it all. That's the paradox of salvation. Mark Strauss said this, the paradox of salvation is that it cost us nothing, yet it costs us everything. That's the paradox of salvation. It's a mystery. Well, we have divine sovereignty and human responsibility. We have salvation that cost us nothing and cost us everything. And then we have a third paradox. 
we have a gospel that is simple and profound. A simple and profound gospel. Go with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In 1 Corinthians 1. First Corinthians one and verse 18 for the word of the cross. That's the gospel for the word of the cross. The gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God for it is written. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever. I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message to preach, or literally through the foolishness of preaching to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews, a stumbling block. A crucified Messiah is, is not my Messiah. That's a stumbling block. And to the Gentiles, foolishness. A crucified Savior, what's that? But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. The gospel is simple, astoundingly simple. So simple a child can understand it. What is the gospel? Well, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul puts it this way. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and was raised again the third day according to the scriptures. That's the gospel. You need to understand that you have sinned against a holy God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised again. And if you will repent turn from sin, self, and the world, put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, he will forgive your sins and save your soul. It's that simple. That's the gospel. It's so simple, a child can understand that. And a child can come to God in childlike faith and be saved. Isn't that amazing? And the gospel is so simple that a man with three PhDs will trip over it and miss the whole thing. Well, that, that doesn't make any sense to me. Well, that's just foolishness. Preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. It's, it's just foolishness. That's just silly. That's myth. That's superstition. That's not scientific. That's not logical. That doesn't make any sense to me at all. And the most educated man you know can, can absolutely miss it, but a child can understand. It, it, it's so simple, you can, you can believe it and accept it and trust it in childlike faith and spend the rest of your life mystified by it. It is the power of God unto salvation. It's profound. In fact, Fisher Humphreys said this, while the gospel is so simple that a child can grasp it, it's also so profound that no one can fully grasp it. <laughs> it's just that rich. Jason Allen said that in many ways, the New Testament as a whole is a large project in documenting, defining, and defending the gospel. Really, the whole New Testament, there's the gospel explained. It's so simple, and yet, the whole New Testament explains it and defines it and defends it. It's been said the gospel is so shallow, a toddler can wade in it, and it's so deep an elephant can swim in it. <laughs> it is so simple and yet so profound. It's mysterious. Aren't you glad you don't have to understand the hypostatic union between the natures of Christ to be saved? <laughs> we talked about the incarnation before. Aren't you glad you don't have to understand the Trinity to be saved? 
Aren't you glad you don't have to understand divine sovereignty and salvation to be saved? All you have to understand is that you're a sinner and Jesus Christ loves you and he died for you and he was raised again and you put your faith in Jesus. That's all you have to understand. You need Jesus. And in childlike faith, you turn to him in repentance and and trust. Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. Forgive me, save me, take me. I'm yours. That's all you have to know. All you have to do. So simple and yet so profound. Um, Jesus was crucified between two thieves. Late in the day, one of those thieves turned to Jesus and said, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus turned to him and said, Today you'll be with me in paradise. Now think about that. That's faith. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. He said that to a dying man who was dying the same horrible death a few feet away. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus responded to that faith and saved him. Now, we have an advantage. That man put his faith in a dying Savior. We put our faith in a risen Savior. That's all you have to know. That's all you have to understand. That's all you have to do. You're a sinner. But Christ came to save sinners. He died on the cross for you. He was raised again. You repent and believe. Repent and put your faith in Jesus, and he'll forgive you and save you and change you. So simple. And you'll spend the rest of your life mystified by it. Have you been saved? Has there been that time in your life when you finally realized you need Jesus Christ and you put your faith and trust in him? If not, I invite you to come this morning. In a moment, we're going to stand up and sing our hymn of decision. I'll be right here. I invite you to come to me and say, preacher, I need Jesus. I want to be saved. We'd love to have a private conversation with you. Pray with you if you'd like to. But you can leave here today, child of God, your sins forgiven, heaven, your home. Say yes to Jesus Christ. If you are saved, let's talk about human responsibility for a minute. We don't have to understand divine sovereignty and all its implications, but there's an aspect of human responsibility we need to understand. God's given us a job. If you know him, you're supposed to tell other people about him. Our responsibility is to preach the gospel to every creature, to make disciples of all the nations, to to be his witnesses to the uttermost parts of the earth. Our human responsibility is to tell people about Jesus and the mystery of salvation. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift of eternal life. Lord, we don't understand it. That's why it's a mystery. It is. It's a mystery. God, we thank you that it is so simple. A child can grasp it and respond in faith. It's so simple. Lord, I pray for the one who's never been saved. Help them to see they're not saved, whether they come from a a religious past, a church past, or or not at all. But help them to see that that they are lost. They, They are without hope, without God in the world, but you love them and Christ died for them. And help them to to know what they need to know and do what they need to do. Draw them to your son even today. Lord, we pray that you take charge of this time of decision. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.